My dear Bagginses and Boffins, Tooks and Brandy Bucks, Grubs, Chubs, Hornblowers, Bulgers, Bracegirdles, and Proudfoots. Proud feet. Welcome to My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast, an unexpected journey through the legacy of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, nigh 20 years hence. Yama The world is changed. I feel it in the water. I feel it in the earth. I smell it in the air. I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And I'm Emily, also known as, I guess, Emily Robinson PT. <laughs> God, I'm like mentally just like about to say my Metal Gear Solid podcast uh, words right now. Um, <laughs> so why a podcast on Lord of the Rings and why now? The latter first. There's never a bad time for Lord of the Rings, but we are coming up on the 20-year anniversary of Fellowship of the Ring, which released December 19th, 2001. And since the internet rages for pop culture anniversaries, well, I was just hoping to get in on that celebration. I guess the bigger point for me is that the Lord of the Rings trilogy of films may be the most significant cinematic event and achievement of my lifetime, and with that, one of my most cherished pieces of art ever, along with Metal Gear Solid and A Song of Ice and Fire, if you followed me from my other podcasts. Few movies before or after capture my imagination, and most importantly, my heart, than these three films. And as someone who came to both the films and the book quite late, these movies and really the books, the whole story, uh, came to me at a time in the middle of the pandemic when I was really looking for some good old-fashioned escapism. And I really don't think I've ever connected with anything else bar maybe Star Wars in the way that I've connected with this. And it's really given me uh, an exciting uh, new way to uh, feel connected with um, art and the sort of wonderful history of uh, fantasy writing and fantasy fan creation. Um, at a time when I think we all really, really need it. Yeah, I really would say that like bringing people together is like at the core of these stories and the cultural imprint, the stories, both the text and the movies have left on Western culture. Um, and I'm glad you came to it late. Uh, you know, you never arrive to it late, nor do you arrive to it early. You arrive to it exactly when you mean to. <laughs> exactly. And with that, a little about what exactly we're trying to accomplish here. We want to celebrate these films, yes, yes, but we really want to revel in them, their emotionality perhaps most of all, the earnestness, the courage, and the bonds of fellowship that have stuck with us for these last couple decades. And not just the fellowship in-universe, but specifically all the friends and strangers we've shared these stories with, including my co-host. But I don't want to elide that we also want to celebrate these movies as cinematic craftwork. The sight, the sounds, the camera work and matte paintings, motion capture and scale models, the performance and direction, the sweeping landscapes, and even more sweeping score. It all deserves its you-bow-to-no-one moment. Lord of the Rings, like Citizen Kane or Star Wars before it, is a nexus of the art form. It captures everything great that came before it to create something new and change everything that comes after. So our plan is to break up the story into smaller segments, mostly by scene, but we may adjust that format as we go, and dive into these scenes with a great eye on the filmmaking, an open heart for the emotion, and an exploration of the themes and discourses that have coalesced around these films over the years. 
So we'll discuss how we both came to The Lord of the Rings, which Emily kind of, you know, briefed us on a little bit earlier. For me, well, many meetings has Lord of the Rings and I. Menu meetings? Eh. <laughs> I guess it technically goes all the way back to the first Fellowship trailer. I just remember that being like the second trailer I ever downloaded on the internet, after The Phantom Menace, of course. I'm sure it was a QuickTime player video that took three hours to download, but that's neither here or there. I did end up missing Fellowship in the theater, too. I blame a desire to hang with my friends my senior year of high school. It kind of landed on my radar twofold. First, the several nominations it would get at the 2002 Oscars, and on recommendation from my bestie Hossein, the very same Hossein who a few years prior lent me his PlayStation and some game called Metal Gear Solid. <laughs> we rented Fellowship together, and I was instantly enchanted. It seems trite now, but every shot really felt like some wonderful oil painting. It captured the wondrous sheen of the elves and the dexterous cracks of orc skin. It looked and sounded special. It felt different. I could smell it in the air. Sorry. <laughs> it, was, it was checking all the boxes I looked for in story and cinema, and even some I didn't know I wanted. I'm admittedly an action bro. Growing up in the 90s, I felt spoiled by movies like T2 and The Rock and The Fugitive and everything else. I even enjoyed the Bravehearts and Robin Hoods and Dragonhearts of the time, the best of medieval fantasy in motion picture. Oh, and Xena too. So while the movie had me early, The Minds of Moria and the final battle at Amon Hen cemented my love with its fast-paced, creative action choreography that spoke to character on top of just looking cool. So Fellowship, yes, love it, I'm in. But it's the two towers that is Lord of the Rings to me, as much as any one experience can be. Except for, again, The Phantom Menace, I can't remember being hyped for anything more than The Two Towers, but I'm going to stop myself there. I'll discuss my meet-cutes with it and Return of the King more explicitly when we arrive at those films. Oh, and I do want to give a nod to my good friend Emmett Booth, a.k.a. Poor Quentin on Twitter. You may know him from the Nauticast podcast, rereading A Song of Ice and Fire, and I'm guessing many of you have heard me guest on that podcast before. He started a reread Patreon series on Lord of the Rings earlier this year, and that was an inspiration for doing the series and hope it can act as a companion piece of sorts. And Emmett and his co-host Jeff are also just inspirations for me in general. Love you guys. So my entry to the world of Lord of the Rings is, I think, rather on brand for me and that it starts with about 20 years of knee-jerk refusing to engage with it on the basis that I was full up of things to be interested in because I liked, when I was younger, Harry Potter and, of course, Star Wars. Um, the Lord of the Rings films came out when I was quite young. Um, I think um, Fellowship came out when I was three. <laughs> um, and I was living overseas in the Middle East and so didn't necessarily have consistent uh, access to movie theaters. Um, and so when I did hear about uh, these movies, it was usually through um, my friend's older sisters having either pinups of Aragorn or Legolas, neither of which I cared about, uh, on their bedroom walls, and me very insistently um, asserting that I would never ever watch anything like that because Harry Potter and Star Wars were more than enough for me. Um, and that carried on for the better part of uh, 20 years, um, and I avoided them and never watched them, and 
sort of looked at them as kind of stale and unnecessary films um, and the kind of boring high fantasy that I really didn't need because I had lightsabers with Star Wars. Um, And then um, when I turned 19, I want to say it was a couple years now, um, I got lightly (laughs) bullied slash coerced by some of my friends into watching Fellowship of the Ring, um, mostly because we couldn't agree on another film, and I think I'd burned out my welcome on making them watch Rogue One. Um, And the very, very great problem for me is that I fell in love with Fellowship right off the bat. Um, The Concerning Hobbits theme is probably one of my favorite pieces of music ever not just film scores ever and it really had me hooked right from the start and uh, it was kind of a slow fall for me from there um, until the pandemic happened Um, and I went back to fellowship repeatedly I guess ad nauseum is probably the better phrase um, just to get the comfort of the Shire um, and the lovely Hobbit's running about um, having their lovely little lives in the sun and the blue skies amongst rolling green hills um, and this idealized vision of England that I was not seeing because it was cold and gray in the England that I was living in. And then um, to continue the horrid spell of contrarianism, um, I was gushing about the movies on Twitter and someone challenged me Uh, to read the books um, because I was being very, very defensive about a portrayal of a character in the movies. And someone said, you wouldn't think that if you'd read the books. And I, knowing better than everybody and having no humility, said, I will read the books and I will still have this exact same opinion of this character when I am done reading the books and I will prove it to you. And then I went and read the books and they totally ruined my life. And they've all that, they're all that I've been able to talk about since. Um, and that was in February of this year. Uh, and I have spent uh, an untenable amount of money purchasing all of the auxiliary books and all of the atlases and Lord of the Rings online and spent uh, hundreds of thousands of words online talking about these films and these books and the world that J.R.R. Tolkien and Peter Jackson helped to bring to life and, and really helped to, to kind of grow and create this mythology with. Um, and, and yeah, so that, that really is me. Um, it is the story of repeatedly proving myself wrong um, and benefiting for it. I mean, you made it really easy to find a co-host for this podcast when I had the idea to, because you've been basically lighting the beacons ever since February about <laughs> Tolkien, the movies, the books. Uh, so it made my job really easy in terms of finding someone to work with. Uh, one other thing you mentioned that I really love, and I think it's worth mentioning up top, is how you mentioned that like the Shire and Fellowship overall, these movies, the books, whatever, were like a comfort to you. Um, and I think that's something that, is very popularly associated with the Lord of the Rings films is as comfort films. Um, you know, you were three, so I don't know how much you felt it, but these movies were released in the wake of 9-11. Um, and as stupid as everything that came after 9-11 was, um, there was definitely a sense of like, when can we feel joy again, you know, and where are we going to find our comforts and where are we going to find, you know, like earnest, you know, love, brotherhood, fellowship, all that kind of stuff. Um, I'm not trying to feed into that post 9-11 narrative, but I do think the Fellowship of the Ring and these movies overall just kind of landed at the perfect time for people to gobble them up. And then it also has that association with Christmas time because they were all December releases. So it's 
often something I associate with going with friends or with family on a Christmas Eve or a Christmas Day. Um, and then they would be replayed during Christmas on like TNT, TBS, USA, yada, yada. Um, and then I think a lot of people, you know, especially during the pandemic, have again can't come back to the Lord of the Rings because it does provide that comfort. It does pr- provide you know, some familiarity and the joys of being outside and going places, which is not something we were able to do very often. So I do think part of the reason Lord of the Rings has had such staying power is because of just how comforting it is, how it almost feels like home. Um, Even if the Shire is never going to be the same again, you know, it's always feels good to come back to it. And I think that's one of the things that I find really, really interesting about all of this is because, you know, I, I really don't have any, I, I mean, I was, yeah, I was three when 9-11 happened and and I have really no memory of the Iraq war at all. Um, and I, I, you know, until you just said that there, I really hadn't clocked the fact that these were Christmas movies for a lot of people. Um, and yeah, I think that the, the like comfort that I draw from them is, is kind of um, uh, not, not no different, but, but no less. Um, and it, it, it really is, I think, um, something incredible in in the material about how um, it kind of speaks to this like base level of, of humanity and the, these kind of fundamental um, like human urges and desires and like needs um, in a way that I think um, we don't often see anymore. Um, and so it means that you know you know Tolkien writing um, in 1949, a month before D Day, um, can have these sort of feelings about these characters in this world and then peter jackson in 1997 um can pick up and 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 relate to those feelings in you know maybe not an identical way but but a way of equal strength and then you know the viewers can pick it up in 2001 and 2002 and 2003 and 20 years later, you know, I can pick it up sitting in a, a dingy little flat in, in England and feel the same thing, even though I've had no experience of the Iraq War or of World War II or of World War I. Um, and it really is just the, the, the sort of magnetism of this material. Yeah. And I think that's going to be one of the most exciting parts of this is because you're obviously coming to this, you know, many years down the line, just because you didn't have the mental capacity to enjoy this at age three, I'm sure. Um, (laughs) Whereas, you know, that was like peak, you know, I'm just getting into film. Um, I, you know, at my high school graduation, I said my hero was Stanley Kubrick. Um, So this was like peak Manu brain in terms of like really diving into cinema and being all about it. So I think we're going to be able to bring two kind of wholly different approaches to both what they mean as like a pop culture landmark, but also just, you know, what these movies mean to us uh, individually. So I guess as is vogue with podcasts is to give a spoiler warning. So our spoiler warning for this and basically all episodes is that we're assuming you know these films back and front. We will provide recaps for everything we cover, but those will be crafted more as a refresher than blow-by-blow plot details. We will also likely reference knowledge from the source books, commentaries, interviews, and hell, maybe even the Hobbit movies. I don't know how much we can spoil at this point, but just know we are assuming more than a passing familiarity. And I think we should give some other disclaimers as well, because I'm sure people will be asking about that. And we'll kind of start with like a Tolkien book disclaimer. Um, And I'll hand it off to Emily to speak more of this. She's definitely the more scholarly token wise of the two of us. Um, but we are, 
mostly trying to focus on the movies and everything that comes with it, the cinematography, the performances, the music. Um, but we are going to reference the books throughout. They will be more of a supplement, um, but we're really not trying to compare them or like litigate what is better, though I do want to give my wonderful co-host plenty of space uh, to iron out some kind of thesis or synthesis in analyzing the movies and the books as we go along. Yeah, for sure. And I think one of the the sort of big and probably the most boring debates that you get in, in this sort of cultural milieu of Lord of the Rings is whether or not the movies or the books are better. And I think probably the 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 line in the sand that we're going to draw is that you know not only are they both trying or not not only are they both different mediums, but they're both trying to do very different things. I think, um, and um, you really have to take both the books and the movies on their own terms and and the films really set out wildly different terms for themselves than than the book um, and so while it is like really interesting and useful to talk about what the books are doing and i will abuse that to no end and talk about the books constantly <laughs> kidding almost um, no you should <laughs> um, it, 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 the 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 things that we talk about in this podcast are going to be about you know reading the 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 movies as a text on their own um, and not trying to you know unnecessarily you know either beat down or beat down the movies or beat down the books in favor of the other they are they are two separate pieces of art doing two very different things yeah could, couldn't have said it better myself and the other kind of I guess, fandom debate that goes along with these films is the discussion of the theatrical versus extended versions of these movies. And well, we're not just going to give away the game all right away here. We'll, we'll talk a little bit more about our methodology with those in our next episode. It began with the forging of the great rings. Three were given to the elves, immortal, wisest, and fairest of all beings. Seven to the Dwarf Lords, great miners and craftsmen of the mountain halls. And nine, nine rings were gifted to the race of men who above all else desire power. All right, so we're going to start by recapping the prologue as delivered by Galadriel, played by Kate Blanchett. The Lord of the Rings saga begins with an exposition dub a necessary grounding in the world and lore of elves and men and rings that comprise the history of Middle-earth. Already we see intelligent decision-making in the adaptation process. Not only is all this, story, all this backstory gathered from various parts of the text, but it is delivered to us by the ethereal Kate Blanchett, playing the role of the elf sorceress Galadriel. We can all basically recite these opening lines, Three rings to the elves, fairest and immortal of all beings. Seven rings to the dwarves, who desire gold. The first of many Austin Power references, I hope. And nine. Nine to men, who like to fuck everything up. <laughs> they were all of them deceived, of course. There's this Dark Lord dude, and he thought, what if I were to make a ring of my own and make all other rings bend to its power? Delightfully devilish, Sauron. With the power of his ring, the Dark Lord executed this plan to bring the world under his shadow. By the hand of the orc, the free kingdoms of Middle-earth fell to Sauron's forces, which included the nine ring-bearers of men, great kings of men, who would wind up becoming Sauron's thralls. Nevertheless, Middle-earth resisted. The last alliance of men and elves marched on Mount Doom to confront Sauron's forces. 
A great battle raged on the slopes of the mountain of fire. Victory was at hand, as the great armies of men and elves, led by, among others, the great elf Elrond and the king of Gondor, fought heroically against the strength of Mordor. The power of the ring could not be undone, though. Sauron enters stage right, towering over the tallest of men. With mace in hand and the one ring on his finger, a single blow would level entire battalions. Among those Sauron would kill on the battlefield would be Gilgalad, leader of the elves, and Elendil, the king of man. Elendil's son, Isildur, famously took up his father's broken blade, Narsil, and cut the ring from the Dark Lord's hand. In this, the army of darkness was defeated, and Sauron himself seemed to be vanquished. The ring then passed to Isildur, which, as stated earlier, men always fuck this thing up. <laughs> Isildur's reign with the ring would be short-lived. An army of orcs later attacked Isildur during a trip through the Gladden Fields, and though Isildur tried to use the ring to slip away, it betrayed him, slipping off his finger and exposing him to a volley of orc arrows. As Isildur's corpse floated away down the Anduin River, the One Ring sunk deep into its banks, lost to memory for nearly 2,000 years. Galadriel picks up the story with the acquisition of the ring by the creature Gollum, who was fully consumed by the power of the ring. He took it deep into the Misty Mountains, where it poisoned his mind and soul for the next 500 years. The shadow of the enemy had begun creeping back into the world, whispers of a nameless fear. As the spirit of Sauron regained vitality, the ring perceived its moment had come. It abandoned Gollum, hoping to be discovered by orcs or by men. But unfortunately for the ring, it was found by the most unlikely of creatures. Martin Freeman of Sherlock. I mean Ian Holm of Alien. No, I mean Bilbo Baggins of The Shire. And that is our recap for the prologue of The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring. For the time will soon come when hobbits will shape the fortunes of all. Um, so I think one of the so so one of the big like film debates, not debates, but one of the things people like talking about when they talk about film is like the greatest ever introductions. Um, and you know, I for a long time had my flag firmly planted in the Star Wars camp, um, which is, you know, the opening crawl is legendary and is just really, really remarkable for the amount of information it conveys in, in such a short period of time. Um, I, I think this prologue in particular and Gladriel's spiel is incredible, not just for what it says about like the actual like text and the story, um, but because of what it says about like the the sort of stories, the film's meta narrative, um, because it's all of, it's bringing in all of these things about, you know, history and story. And she has this line that drives me nuts but I, I it is brilliant but it drives me nuts um which is you know um stories passed into history and history passed into legend and and then everybody forgot it or something like that you know much better written when it's done by screenwriters surprisingly um but but it sets up this sort of unsettling feeling which is that this isn't meant to be realistic necessarily this isn't meant to be a sort of gritty um, grim, dark film about the realities of war and the sort of difficulties of of men's hubris and the struggle and strife of governance in you know sort of semi feudalistic um, a semi feudalistic setup. This is fundamentally a, a bedtime story. It's a tale to be told to kids. It's a tale to explain how the world came to be as it is without using, you know, physics and, and, and maths to do it. Um, 
And it really informs the viewer right from the off that you shouldn't be looking for realism here. This is true fantasy and the things that you are told, you are told, but you're maybe not told them by a reliable narrator. And so you don't know if you should be trusting absolutely everything that you see on screen. And you don't know if these stories are completely true or if Galadriel is really being as honest as she needs to. And it really sets the whole tone of the the trilogy in just this really remarkable way. It's, you know, the, the more I come back to it and think about it, the more I'm like, my God, they really knocked it out of the park with that thing. Yeah, no, I love that bit about unreliable narrator because, well, you know, it is a fairly, you know, accurate description of the big picture events leading into the story. It's not without Galadriel's own editorialization. Um, she calls the elves fairest and wisest and, you know, <laughs> men just desire power. She's definitely throwing some low key shade there. Um, so I had never really thought about that, but um, I do think that is really true in that a lot of the Lord of the Rings, both the book and the films are about the nature of story itself. And I want to give a quick hat tip again to my buddy, poor Quentin, who kind of led me down this path. But Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit are very much about the story and the road and the never-ending nature of each. The road goes ever on, as does story, and as does the legacy of Lord of the Rings. Um, I really like how a couple of times during the prologue, Galadriel mentions that knowledge of the ring passed out of all memory, indicating what we lose if we don't maintain and pass down stories ad infinitum. Um, and that's kind of what we're doing here in our own way. We're, in a meta sense, kind of passing on our own versions of the story that we all you know, saw and watched and read um, over the last 20 to 80 years or so, um, which I think is very fascinating. I had never really put together how much the story of the Lord of the Rings is just about story itself. Yeah, and I think it is one of these um, really sort of remarkable, um, not necessarily like missed elements in in this sort of slightly dull conversation about whether or not the movies or the books are better. Um, but they are two very, very interesting entries into this conversation about what role stories um, have in our lives. Because, you know, Tolkien sets out for the books to you know at various points obviously this is his his life's masterpiece the legendarium and so he has different purposes at different points but at varying points in his his life he wants the the legendarium the the stories of lord of the rings and middle earth to be a sort of new mythology for england that is separate and distinct to British mythology, so separate and distinct to like the tales of Arthur. Um, and he really, really wants this to be a, a sort of new way for England to understand itself and its past. Um, even, you know, not necessarily historically accurate, but something emotionally to connect to when there really wasn't for most of Tolkien's life. And, you know, some some scholars would argue for very many years after, not really a whole lot for for England as a sort of nation to to cling to culturally and mythologically, um, and and so when Peter Jackson then gets to it in the 1990s, and you know there's the there's been a seismic shift in the world since. Lord of the Rings was written and, you know, published in 1954, I think. Someone will correct me if I've gotten that wrong. Um, there's been a there's been an enormous amount of change. You know, the 
two world wars have come and gone. The Cold War has come and gone. Communism has risen and fallen. Um, sorry to use the very boring history terms there, but like there, there has really been a, a lot that's changed, and and how people relate to storytelling um, has really changed, and what what we sort of need out of the stories we tell each other has changed. And so Peter Jackson picks up on this, and and goes a, a like a markedly different direction because he's not trying to create a mythology he's trying to create um a, like a sounding board for emotional catharsis um, and so when you get you know the the difference between the opening of fellowship of the ring which is recapping the hobbit and talking about bilbo baggins and and his birthday party and the details of his birthday party and how he's going to get you know food there and what relatives are annoying versus this you know heavy hitting galadriel monologue which is covering the whole history of the world and talking about how you know men are kind of tits and you know the ring is really really picking and choosing kind of weird places to end up and how we've all forgotten everything. Those are two very different mission statements and and both equally powerful, I would say. And, you know, I think now in the year 2021, the general mass appetite for fantasy is way higher than it was. And often people would just say, it's like, oh, I don't want to get into all this world building or some of the more clumsier or... Um, ponderous, you know, fantasy, you know, series in terms of books, you know, just kind of open up with, you know, pages upon chapters of just here's all the things you need to know before we start telling the story. Um, and you do need some of that here because when Tolkien was writing this, you know, he had some vision of Middle Earth, even though he was, you know, constantly transforming it from where it was with The Hobbit to where it would be with Fellowship. Uh, but it was, you know, it was considered, you know, a high bar to clear. It's like mass audiences would not be into fantasy. Um, you know, there's no appetite for it or they're good with like one, you know, fantasy movie a year or for every five years. And that was pretty much it. And it very rarely got the big budget treatment that, say, a Star Wars would. Um, so it was always kind of relegated as that quote unquote genre storytelling um, and not really treated seriously. And there it was just kind of popularly viewed as a lot of barriers to entry to fantasy storytelling because of, you know, dense world building and stuff like that. And for them to really, you know, take parts from all sorts of places, mostly in fellowship, but, you know, from all parts of the story to kind of come up with this cohesive intro that gives you all that world building, but does so in a way that's captivating. I mean, how smart it is. I mean, I've already said it twice on here to give that kind of narration to Kate Blanchett to read uh, is already, you know, a stellar choice. And it just all of a sudden, like when I watched Fellowship for the first time, it was seeing those like armies march on Mount Doom, where I was mm -hmm. like, wow, I really haven't seen anything like this. I've seen stuff that's kind of like this, like, you know, things in Braveheart and Gladiator depicted mass you know, medieval or sword and sandal style battles, but nothing quite like this that perfectly merged, uh, you know, fantasy with, you know, I don't want to say realism, but, you know, it kind of lived um, in a space where things were some aspects of what we were seeing are familiar to audiences. And then some aspects were completely brand new. Yeah, I think like you bringing up the battles is, is really, really key because I think it is one of the, the more interesting sort of, um, 
elements of the movies that that differs to the books that I actually think really says a lot about the the sort of foundations of both, um, which is I, I, I did in sort of a, a blind kind of panic um, a couple weeks ago. I went through and, and um, counted up the number of pages across the trilogy that um, deal with battles. Um, and I went with my sort of most liberal um, assessment of what qualified as a battle. And I think I included like chapters, um, even if the bulk of the chapter wasn't about a battle, if it had a battle in it or mentioned in it, then it counted towards this like battle count. And, and, and the number of chapters that deal with it across three books is vanishingly small. It's something like 6% of the trilogy deals with war and explicit depictions of war, whereas the movies spend almost all of their time dealing with war and battle. And, you know, in the case of like Two Towers, the build up to it, or in the case of Fellowship, the aftermath, the really horrible aftermath of a battle gone wrong. Um, and, and it comes down, I think, in a lot of ways, not just to the sort of creative choices, but I think to the conditions in which these stories are made. Um, and, you know, Peter Jackson famously had to battle um, with the production companies and with Harvey Weinstein um, for the ability to make the, these films as he wanted it. And the production companies, who are obviously motivated by money, um, really put a lot of constraints on him. Um, and so the fact that he was able to spend the amount of money that he was on creating this new technology to film battle scenes, these massive, spectacular, epic battle scenes, um, but wasn't necessarily given the money to do as many films as he would have wanted to do, is really fascinating to me to contrast with, for example, Tolkien, who gets to write these books in large part because he is a language professor at Oxford and in this sort of cushy um financial situation where he goes and does his lectures at college and you know lectures for maybe an hour or two every day or every other day and then gets to dedicate the rest of his time to writing Lord of the Rings and he has a steady income and he doesn't really need these books to be bestsellers because he's set in life and you know he's got his vet pension as well because he he served in World War One um, and so his constraints are wildly different so he can spend a lot of time talking about the history of an Aryan and Isildur and Elendil and you know going into building a language like Quenya and Sindarin and you know you know a, a guy who comes up with a Latin language for his world and then comes up with a sort of middle tier language for his world and then comes up with a whole bunch of vulgar languages as well is someone who has more time and money to spend on it and fewer constraints financial constraints than peter jackson who is you know constantly having to face down production companies that want to turn a profit on it and i think it is really fascinating how that plays out yeah absolutely and you talk about all the pressures that would have been on Jackson from, you know, executives and, you know, awful, awful people like Harvey Weinstein and stuff. And then you also have to think about a little bit the landscape of, you know, Hollywood or blockbuster cinema in the late 90s. And there was good stuff there, you know, like The Matrix came out around that time and stuff like that. But, um, you know, everything, you know, we already talked about how fantasy was kind of a high bar 
Um, everything had to be kind of not quite like MCU level tongue in cheek, but you know, you had to be, haha, we aren't too serious about this kind of thing. Um, and everything was kind of in that r- extreme sarcasm mode of the late nineties, like think like Mountain Dew code red kind of stuff. And then, you know, just to make something that was true to Tolkien's, you know, vision that's, you know, very earnest and wears its feelings on its sleeve. And, you know, a lot of that doesn't come through yet in the prologue. And I'm afraid I'm throwing all my Lord of the Rings thoughts (laughs) out in our first episode. Um, But it really was like just such a wild time for this set of films to actually come out, given everything else that was coming out around it. Yeah, and I think that is one of the things that is is interesting. Um, and as I've sort of been thinking about like this prologue in particular, um, because um, well, for for um, our listeners who who don't know, and which I assume is almost everyone, um, I have uh, just finished doing uh, my second degree in history um, and writing a ridiculous um, dissertation on like the relationship of um, historians to the people they study and, and the subjects. Um, and one of the things that you spend um, a lot of time thinking about when you're doing these extra degrees um, in in history is um, how the way that uh, history unfolds around people changes the history that they tell. So it's not just how it's passed down, but it's how you're thinking about that history when you're later telling it. Like you can be given a certain set of facts um, and you'll tell the story one way um, when you're 21 years old and in the middle of say the Iraq war um, and you'll tell with those same facts, no facts change the story an entirely different way when you're, you know, 50 years old and, you know, a survivor of Elon Musk's galactic space war. Um, and, and I think it's really fascinating to look at the, the prologue because, um, a lot of the facts, you know, some of the facts that Gladriel gives are, are like do differ from the books and that's true. And I'm sure like the like more hardcore book fans will want to skewer me for like patching over that papering over that. But most of the facts are, are there and they're true, but the way that they're conveyed um, through the prologue is wildly different to how they're portrayed in the book and how they're presented in the book. Um, and it is the difference between, you know, Galadriel kind of um, having this sort of more war-oriented and, and strife-oriented um, and active um, view of the players uh, that she describes. You know, Isildur and Anarion and um, Elendil are all, you know, her contemporaries and they're people that she can pass judgment on in quite an emotional way. Um, and that comes across really, you know, in her kind of bitterness um, towards men and her kind of, you know, uh, unnecessary kindness, I would say, uh, towards the elves. Um, and, you know, in in terms of where Peter Jackson is coming from when he's working through this prologue um history feels a bit more visceral because you know the soviet union has only just collapsed um well i say only just but this the soviet union quite recently collapsed in the Mm -hmm. 90s when this was being written um and uh there was sort of a a sense of like i say there was a sense i realized i was not born for most of this but from my uh high and mighty history reading there was a sense of like what's next what happens now like we've completed history francis fukuyama and what comes next do we really need anything more than what we've got um and I think that comes across a lot in like how Galadriel presents the facts that she does. Whereas in the books, most of these facts are presented kind of strangely um, in 
Two Towers um, by my favorite character, Faramir, who has this like 10,000 word monologue where he's kind of looking back on the world and being like, you know, bad choices were made, but it's kind of all over and we're all a bit listless and, you know, there's no kind of point being too angry about it because we're all going to die anyways. Um, and you can contrast that to like Galadriel's kind of seething anger about the stupid shit that Isildur does. Um, and it is really kind of a, an interesting uh, like interplay there between how these facts get presented. And then the other thing I like about the prologue is that it acts as an overture. Uh, an overture classically in cinema is a piece of music usually before or during like opening credits that kind of works through the major movements of the score, but also kind of corresponds with the you know major movements of the story. And it's kind of a sort of foreshadowing of what's to come. And I like how this prologue specifically is almost the entire trilogy writ small. Um, you get an introduction that shows us giant battles, characters on the road, dirty fingle, fingernails, um, all the things that are like hallmarks of the story that we're going to invest, you know, the next nine hours of our time into in terms of the movie runtimes. And I like that how it takes everything that's going to make the story great and kind of shrinks it down. Um, and, you know, it kind of it doesn't really end with the big battle on Mount Doom, even though that's like kind of where our story ends. But then it comes back down and focuses on Gollum and Bilbo, which will echo the ending, you know, with Gollum and Frodo instead. Uh, so I really just like how um, you can kind of see how the entire story is condensed down into these opening what six to nine minutes um not entirely sure exactly how long they go but um you get a feel for everything that's about to come without the feeling that anything is being given away yeah and i think it like lends a sense of like cohesion um to uh to the story that um i think they they did a really remarkable job of introducing because and again this is going to be like the book fans are going to scare me for this but like um there is kind of a sense of like erraticness in the books that um makes it a little strange to kind of read through because it is a bit of like a chaos story in some ways there are like divine interventions and things do sometimes go right but a lot of the time you know, in the book, shit happens, um, and and shit happens because shit happens, and there's nothing really else to say about it. Um, but the movies and this prologue in particular really kind of help to give it a more kind of tightly um, kept um, sense to it. And there there is this feeling that like it is a story that has like both come and gone and completed and is now being transmitted after the fact. Um, and and it, it can be sort of polished and manicured and made nice. Yeah, very much so. And I think that's probably a good spot to kind of transition as we want to kind of talk a little bit more about like the filmmaking. And, you know, one of the things that I uh, mentioned earlier in my uh, introduction was a little bit of how I viewed The Lord of the Rings as kind of a nexus of the medium, uh, where you can see all the things that kind of define cinema that happened before The Lord of the Rings um, kind of feed into the movies, the blending of CGI and practical effects. You still have scale models and matte paintings, but you're also pioneering, you know, VFX at a time. Motion capture was just hitting it big, and it'll be a big discussion point once we get to Gollum and the Two Towers. Um, but you really can see that it kind of lives on that edge of old Hollywood, not old Hollywood, but like 
old school filmmaking, like stuff when you see the making of Star Wars 1977 and you see trucks driving by, uh, dropping fireworks on a, you know, miniaturized Death Star trench. Um, you have that just as much as you have, you know, green screen nonsense that defines uh, the Marvel Cinematic Universe these days. Um, and they were able to find just that perfect synthesis of where do we where do we need to use practical effects um such as like the orc skin and adding some texture to them cuz you can really see every gnarly you know crack and break in every orc's face but then you look at the elves and you can tell there's a certain like sheen applied to the camera to give them that ethereal kind of glowing sense like almost like you know luminous beings are we not this crude matter that there's just energy in them that's just waiting to explode out of their physical boundaries Right. Yes, absolutely. And this, like, I'm really glad you fit on this because this is like my favorite sort of hobby horse right now about the Lord of the Rings films, which is that they take a very firm stylistic stance. Um, and it is something that we really don't see that often in mainstream cinema, I think, um, because there's been this sort of subsequent, sort of contemporary and subsequent rise of hyperrealism um, and, and this sense that like everything that goes on screen in a film has to reflect the reality that the characters are facing um, and so if we as the audience see it on the big screen it's also what the characters are seeing but but the lord of the rings takes a slightly different approach to it um, and you know some of this is guided by like the, the the sort of like natural constraints of the technology and the craft but a lot of it is like a like a really good and interesting stylistic choice and and they do make it look like a storybook you know there are like people like to make fun and you know i i am people in this of the sort of 1980s rick astley kind of music video feeling to uh when elrond starts to to heal uh frodo after weathertop and you know he's kind of coming in and out and it's all bright white lights and a bit a bit hokey but it looks brilliant still because it's a really firm and like 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 genuinely made stylistic choice it's not just like the cgi looks like shit because the cgi looks like shit the cgi looks stylistically done because they wanted it to be that way and so even when there are these kind of like like slight cracks or slips and what the technology was able to do or what the craft was able to do it really doesn't read as glaringly to us now because it is stylized and because it is beautiful and artistically done yeah and it it makes sense with itself so watching these movies now 20 years hence um i still i i don't lose anything in the visuals i still feel it looks great even though i'm like oh that shot of Gollum, you know probably would be better done now but it all is consistent with itself and you can see how much better it's aged than say you know, no offense, but the Star Wars prequels definitely don't look as good as this or even the future Hobbit movies, uh, which didn't, you know, rely on this blending of CGI and special effects quite as much. Um, they le leaned a little harder into the CGI, especially with orc stuff. Um, you can see that those even have an age and those came out a full 10 years after um, The Lord of the Rings. So I'm really just a big fan of you know, setting your aesthetic, like you said, and like sticking to it, because I think that will always just age better and just always feel more of a piece with the story on screen rather than having those scenes that completely take you out of it because it just looks dated or something like that. Yeah, totally. And I think that's one of the things that, that kind of helps because when you have that like um, stylistically unique feeling to your movie, um, it really, like, like you say, it does help suspend disbelief. And so it means that 
you know, even if you are, you know, like me, kind of like a nitpicky book fan, it's hard to not agree with the choices that they make because it just looks so damn good. Um, you know, there, there are things that I like to criticize because I'm quite gung-ho on like Tolkien's like pacifism message, um, like things that I, you know, wouldn't have done personally, like about certain battle scenes or whatever, but I'm like, but it looks so beautiful and it gets to this sort of beauty of storytelling element that they have set down as one of their, their sort of terms on which they want to be judged that I'm like, yeah, you got You really got to give it to them. Like they have done what they set out to do flawlessly. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I know we kind of talked about um, the battle a little bit that we see um, the, you know, last Alliance versus Sauron's armies. And it's, you know, just really kind of a vignette of a battle. It's not a fully realized, you know, kind of three act structure like we'll get at Helm's Deep or something. But you really it really defines the scope and the scale of this story that this is going to be uh, all encompassing world ending I wouldn't call it apocalyptic, but it kind of is um, because it's really about, you know, stopping the end of the world or, you know, the descent into shadow. Um, and it really helps set a tone. Um, and then, you know, another thing I really like about um, this intro is that they don't emphasize it too much, but there are just shots of maps, <laughs> um, which is just, you know, a key part of the fantasy genre in terms of world building. It's just a very basic building block. And this story never really tries to hit you over the head with exactly what direction, you know, people are going. Sometimes they fudge it a little bit in terms of timing and distance just to, you know, make things more interesting in terms of a cinematic language. But I do like how they incorporate that sense of geography because in the end, it is the story about getting like from the upper left corner of somewhere to like the lower right corner <laughs> and all the things that happen in the middle. And I really do like that. They'll show, here's a map of Middle Earth. And then when Sauron's, you know, power is growing they see that you see the mortar part of the map kind of start going brownish blackish as if someone lit a flame underneath it and you're seeing that corruption kind of spread out to the rest of the world it's a great way of invoking that fantasy mindset that fantasy building block but also using it to help tell your story and help kind of ground a geography to all this even if you know the the blow to blow beats of the plot later on aren't going to hinge that tightly on the map as much as say Tolkien's text which gets much nittier and grittier in terms of <laughs> paths through forests and through mountains and all that sort of stuff that we don't actually see in the movies yeah. And I think that is one of the things that I, I find really fascinating about it is because, um, you know, I, I love the maps that they use. It's the Tolkien's hand-drawn map. Um, and as, as we're recording this, I'm staring at a, a version of the map that I have spent months embroidering. Um, so I really do love that map. But I also love that um, they don't over-rely on it, like you say, because it really does contribute to this post-apocalyptic sense of the world that sort of unfolds the closer and closer and um, our heroes get to Mordor. Um, because by the time um, Galadriel's monologue ends, by the time we show up in the Shire, um, the world has ended. Um, magic has gone out of the world. You know, you really get that sense sort of at the start of fellowship as well with, you know, the elves are the, the sort of magic beating heart of Middle Earth and and they're fucking off. They're done with it. They're they're over. And, you know, the, the, the sort of high fantasy element of Middle Earth is going out. This bright spark is, is leaving. And so it's people kind of fighting, you know, to borrow uh, the, the line from, I guess, the Game of Thrones show. Like, it is people kind of fighting to be king of the ashes, really. Um, and and there is that sense as you look at these maps, like how much of this has actually really been 
kept alive or how much of this is really just like a like a, a map of ruins a city of ruins and are is this like an archaeologist map because everything's broken apart and that no, no, like not over reliance lack of over reliance on like infrastructure um like geographical infrastructure really helps to sell that um i think in, in like quite like a beautiful and affecting way and I think another thing that uh, this uh, prologue does, and you kind of mentioned it uh, with the the Elrond scene uh, when you know Frodo's kind of being healed uh, at Rivendell, is they're just like what I like to call vibe shots, or like <laughs> shots not of like characters doing stuff, but just like random shots of nature, or even just the ring kind of flipping as it's like someone like you know tossed it like a coin in the air. It's like these aren't actually meant to be like, oh, this is something that happened, but they just use just like, you know, here's a tree branch against the moonlight, or here's, you know, a little reverb going through a little pond, and they're able to use these, again, vibe shots. I really have no idea what to call them, <laughs> but then you can just, you know, overlay score and Galadriel's narration on it, and it does heavy lifting, but it also feels like you're getting a tour of the world kind of hand-in-hand hand with those maps. It's like, okay, you see what it looks like on paper, but then here's the actual you know, grit of it. Here's what trees look like. Here's what a forest might look like. Um, all that sort of stuff. And it just, you know, a lot of, a lot of things about cinema, about a good movie is just that it has, you know, good vibes. It has a great tone and this just sets the tone and it will come back to use just random shots that don't really make sense in a storytelling aspect, but it does just help, you know, kind of stitch everything together. So it all feels of a piece. Yeah, and this is, I think, one of the things, and I know I've been like, we're not going to like constantly compare the books and movies, and then that's been all that I've done, but, um, <laughs> what is it, the Stephen A. Smith, but, um, um, there is something really fascinating to that use of the kind of like, like B-roll, I guess, like like news B-roll um, of Middle Earth that goes on that you, you don't get in the books because, because you can't, like you can't describe, sit and describe the like, the way like a ring falls through um a river in the same depth and with the same sort of like emotional impact that that you can by portraying it on screen in a film um and it really it really does do some remarkable world building work that i suspect um old johnny tolks may have been slightly jealous of um because it really does have this massive impact you know tolkien has to use these like 300 page appendices to build out the same amount of stuff that you can do in one or two b-roll shots in in a film and it is just like it is insane levels of bang for your buck and then kind of pivoting a little bit we want to talk about the score and you know as we kind of go through you know the various scenes and movies we want to talk about the various you know themes and light motifs that are introduced um, in this prologue, the only re the major leitmotif really introduced is, and I do not have the words to speak to musical movements, but it's kind of the one that overlays when they actually flash the Lord of the Rings on the screen. It's kind of that mysterious, ominous. Um, I can't even recreate it because I'm tone deaf and I don't want to lose our fans in the first episode. <laughs> um, but, you know, that's kind of the music that plays usually when someone's tempted by the ring or, um, you know, something kind of mysterious is happening. And it does kind of hang that veil, not of mystery per se. Maybe it is mystery. Um, just 
over the entire thing, uh, which is going to be a stark contrast when we get to the next scene and concerning Hobbits, which is, you know, one of the most emotionally comforting pieces of music I ever saw where or heard. Um, but, you know, as opposed to this main light motif, which is kind of just um, supposed to create a sort of eeriness, a sort of unknowingness about this world and, you know, all the machinations and the wizards and uh, magical forces that kind of drive it. Yeah. Oh my God. Yes. Um, and I'm definitely going to get roasted by all the music nerds who listen to this, but there is like this, like, um, so that's like the do, 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 do. And I'm so sorry to all of your ears. Don't blame me for that. I got um, it. But there is like a warbling kind of vibrato. I don't know if it's vibrato. Um, I, I played flute and French horn briefly, so I'm very sorry about my musical terminology, but there is this like warbling to it. Um, that kind of makes it feel like it's coming to you through panes of glass or through like water like you know the water of Galadriel's mirror um there is this kind of distance to it and it's slower and it, it kind of um has like a like a like a a kind of like molassesy feel to it almost in in how um it comes to you and then of course you you contrast that with concerning hobbits which is you know very light and upbeat and quick and staccato and there's like this kind of cheerfulness and you can imagine like skipping through a field to it and 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 this sort of main fellowship theme is um a lot more sort of uh, wobbly, warbly, um, very kind of um, working to make you feel like the like ground that you're standing on, both like in the literal sense, but also like the auditory ground that you're standing on is a bit uneven and could collapse underneath you at any moment. Oh God, that's such a good observation because now that warbling almost seems because I mentioned it kind of often goes hand in hand with scenes about the ring itself. Um, and you know, the ring when it's, you know, presented to various characters kind of creates this conflict within the human heart of like, do I take the ring? Do I not? And that kind of waffling or warbling that might be ha happening inside certain characters, like say a Faramir or uh, whoever else, um, that leitmotif really picks that up, that you are on uneven ground, you're unsure what to do, your heart says one thing, your mind says another. Um, I just never really picked up that, and I think you're right in calling it a vibrato, and I know even less than you, so um, <laughs> I'm mostly saying this, so if you're mad, you can get mad at both of us and not just on the lead <laughs> specifically. Um, but yeah, like that kind of like wavering kind of reflects what happens when characters are presented with the ring. Uh, so man, that's just a fantastic observation. It's just this music. Like I, I, I keep getting, um, so, so for a long time, my partner and I shared a Spotify and he kept making fun of me because when I was writing my dissertation for several long months, I would listen to the soundtracks for like 11 hours a day and so every time he would like open spotify on his phone it would just be either concerning hobbits or um or the green dragon to be honest a lot of the time and so i spent so much time um listening to this music and being like oh my god like this makes me feel like i'm sitting on like my chair funny like i'm about to fall off my rolling chair or like you know what i mean like it is absurdly evocative music yeah and uh, speaking of evocative, um, the other kind of part I wanted to highlight about the score here was the score kind of during that uh, last alliance battle on Mount Doom, uh, just because they instantly, again, I don't have the words for this, bring in like that choral element of like, you know, you can imagine a gothic set of people like, you know, chanting or ahhing. Again, I'm tone deaf. I can't do this. But um, it reminds me a lot of Excalibur, um, which also has, you know, a very kind of 
again, Coralie um, aspect to its main uh, score. And that, you know, is, I think, intentional to bring in, you know, like, you know, Lord of the Rings, you know, borrows some stuff from Arthurian legend. And the Lord of the Rings films are obviously borrowing from some stuff that's in the Excalibur film. Um, but it just really kind of, I feel like whenever, you know, a score introduces those kind of choral elements, it just makes things bigger or, and I hate to say epic in the context of like, internet speak but it just gives that grander feeling to everything that's going on that like oh shit this matters kind of thing um and i like how uh it's just you know makes me think of that stuff it makes me think of stuff that i think they want me to think about um whether it's the movie excalibur arthurian legend or just battles being this big and this kind of you know monumental to the fate of the world so to speak yeah. And see, this is what I think is really interesting is because the way in which they like telegraph that to you is really different to like, for example, something that we've we've both talked about um, quite a bit already in this episode is, is Star Wars. Um, and if you think about like the battle themes in Star Wars or even the opening music of Star Wars, it's these big, blaring brass sections it's these you know massive percussion sections it's it's loud and it's in your face and it's bright and clear and it is telling you that there is a battle that is going on that it is significant and that you cannot forget what's going on and that there's sort of an element of nobility to it and like of, of like moral purity to what's going on and you compare that to the opening music for like the first couple pieces and um fellowship and there there really isn't that element of that sort of like pomp and circumstance style heavy brass music it's it is sort of more um it is epic like you, like you've said it is epic but it's um quietly and almost more humbly epic and it's it is a bit concerned about like like why it's epic you know there is a bit of like a, a sort of moral questioning um going on in the music because it isn't heralding valiant soldiers and these brilliant stories of war it is a bit like you know war is epic but holy shit is it bad too um and it is um really sort of excitingly done through the music there that kind of like moral quandary that moral insecurity and again it's like you can compare this to, like, say, the battle at the Black Gate near the end of Return of the King, because it also introduces choral elements, but it has a kind of different tone because here in this prologue, you know, and the battle at Mount Doom, um, it was, you know, a quasi victory for, you know, men and elves. It wasn't, you know, the end of evil or anything, or they defeated Sauron for good. It was very much, eh, we kicked it down, you know, a couple hundred generations. Uh, <laughs> they'll have to deal with it. So um, even in very similar kind of musical pieces, you can see just very slight differences in tone that kind of separate the two. So you can like peg one as the intro to the story and peg one as like the climax of the story. Yeah. It's just like, I think there's just something really fascinating um, about the way that music is used in these films. Um, especially like vis-a-vis, -vis, I'm so sorry again, but like the books, um, because like the books can only describe music and they certainly do describe music. And, you know, uh, I've, I've read a really good joke on Twitter and I can't remember who tweeted it. So I'm very sorry, but, um, uh, you know, the Lord of the Rings movies are the, or the Lord of the Rings is the sort of only series where the books are a musical and the movies are not. Um, and, it's this sort of conflict where like, you know, the books have loads and loads of songs in them, but you can't hear them. Um, and the movies have lots and lots 
of songs in them as well, but they're not songs whose lyrics you understand. Um, and so you're reading the lyrics in the book and not really hearing the songs, but you're hearing the songs or hearing the tune rather in the movies and not understanding the lyrics. And that sort of disconnect, I think, really works incredibly to to building up this sort of sense of alienness and um and strangeness and and kind of history in the books or in the movies damn it <laughs> sorry <laughs> yeah um and then the last thing i just i think i'm going to tease it or just say something i want to keep my eye on that you kind of mentioned is there isn't as much percussion as you might expect in uh, you know, some of the Lord of the Rings pieces. I, some of them definitely have lots of heavy drums to it, especially stuff with the orcs um, mm-hmm. and marching to war. But um, compared to, like, say, Star Wars, again, I think that's just going to kind of be our baseline, you know, fantasy comparison for a lot of this stuff, at least in terms of cinematics. Um, you know, there's percussion all over the place and, um, you know, John Williams, the score. And, um, you know, there are parts that are basically led by the timpani and the bass drum that kind of fill in major gaps of, let's say the main, you know, Star Wars theme and stuff like that. Um, whereas drums are, they're definitely part of all the music here, but like when they actually play up the drums is something that I've been just taking note of uh, more and more because a lot of um, the main themes that we think about are really driven by strings, really strings, you know, a little bit of horns and stuff like that. But um, I, I'm interested in tracking just how percussion is used um, in these films. And we can kind of track that as we get into later scenes and, later light motifs and i think that's probably a good point for us to transition into our last section here which is our token token book analysis <laughs> and uh sorry i i have to do you know stupid cringy pun stuff when i uh, podcast but um you know this is definitely a spot where um i've read the books twice ish um and i don't know them as well and i'm definitely going to give way to emily more often in this section um, but one thing I just wanted to kind of kick it off with is we don't really get the the prologue like this as presented in the story. We do get that kind of recounting of what actually happened um, in The Hobbit and how Tolkien kind of wanted to massage that into what his story is going to be here. Um, but then also he's pulling from parts like where Gandalf returns to the Shire after Bilbo had left and tells Frodo all this stuff. Um, and then I think part of this uh, prologue also comes from uh, the Council of Elrond, and when they get to Rivendale and get a little more um, story about some of this stuff. So um, what do you think in terms of adapting the various parts of the text that, you know, kind of came into what would be the prologue of the films? Yeah, so so I think one of the things that um, I, I love, um, and as, I, as I've mentioned, um, my, my favorite character in the books is Faramir, because he is sort of this, like, patron, patron saint of historians. Um, and Tolkien um, throughout the books um, has kind of two things going. Um, One is where there's sort of like history as truth. um, And uh, Tolkien has kind of like this idealized vision of history um, where there is like an objective truth to history um, and it is possible to pass this objective truth down. Um, And um, typically the characters in the books that he lets tell these kind of objective historical truths um, he does so both because they are characters who sort of have this like organic authority to them, but are also characters who he is trying to imbue with this like organic authority. So 
you get um, Elrond um, and actually, you know, a, a lot of the, the figures at the Council of Elrond um, who get to tell these um, stories that we have to sort of accept as as the historical truth. Um, you get Gandalf, obviously, at various points. Um, you get, um, I, I would say, rather... Um, interestingly, because Tolkien himself later contradicts a lot of what is said, but Faramir and uh, the in two towers uh, stopping in the middle of one of the most uh, fast-paced uh, books in the the sort of six book uh, six book trilogy, haha, um, to like give this history lecture, um, and Treebeard, um, who also is a is a really uh, interesting and significant sort of purveyor of historical fact in the books. Um, and so given that there's this context of Tolkien using history as a way to sort of show who's important in the story, um, kind of taking all of those away from those characters and putting them specifically in Galadriel is a really fascinating choice um, because Galadriel in the books isn't necessarily an intellectual. I mean, she is incredibly powerful um, and is a, a sort of a, a, like a phenomenal and renowned politician um, and is a good steward of her people, but she's not a scholar. Um, and so the fact that she is then given this huge amount of history to sort of bestow on us as the viewers is, is I think, really sort of an interesting way of looking at like how and people in the 1990s and early 2000s were thinking about the role of history and you know sorry to quote Hamilton but like who lives who dies who tells your story right like I hate that Lin-Manuel Miranda wrote those lyrics because they are perfect um for talking about history um but but yeah but then there's also this like fact of like dumping it on us all at the start whereas in the books it kind of comes out over uh 1800 pages you get it in 180 seconds in the movie which is just i mean it's just a dream yeah and it is it is kind of wild just in the fact that like really all you need to take away is magic ring belong to bad dude got to make sure he doesn't get it back i mean there's definitely a lot more going on but they were able to work in a lot of stuff about you know isildur who doesn't have as much of a presence in the film as he does in the what's it called text and we definitely get a lot more history about what happened to him and his time with the ring um you know we get him mentioned maybe like four or five times in the first movie um usually in relation to aragon or the first time gandalf's doing his research on bilbo's ring um but the way that they're able to bring it back, and I hate to say it for the fourth time, but it's just so smart to give it to, um, you know, Kate Blanchett in this case. And then we'll get into later episodes where they're giving it to Ian McKellen or Christopher Lee to do some of that world building for us. But um, knowing who to bank on, who can make a compelling thing. And that, you know, you talk about who lives, who dies, who tells your story by putting it in the um, point of view to start off with an eternal being um, that does kind of, I don't want to say add objectivity, but does add kind of that bigger lens on the whole world. Um, you know, one that, you know, mortal minds or mortal people would be incapable of actually um, portraying or, you know, conveying to the audience. Yeah. And I think it's interesting that you like hit on the, like the, the, the very sort of, um, 
significant issue of like of Aragorn and like he is this elephant in in the room for this prologue because um like his elvish name Astol Sindarin means hope um and he is this kind of hope of of not just men but of Middle Earth um and he is conspicuously absent um, from Galadriel's monologue. Um, and I say conspicuously, not just because, like, you know, if you've read the books before you go into the movies for the first time, you know who he is and you know that he's significant, you know that he's the king in, in Return of the King. Um, but because um, canonically, Galadriel is the grandmother of his, you know, wife to be, his betrothed, Arwen. Um, and so she absolutely knows that there is hope for men and that there is this like valiant, um, valiant and gallant, there you go, uh, figure uh, who who will come amongst the men and, and claim his place as king. Um, and she just doesn't mention him at all. And that is, I think, also gives this really um, fascinating element to the way that the like history is told, because in the books, he never shuts up about his history um, ever. He's always talking about it. And so he's kind of like historically silenced in this moment. Um, and I would say, because I am a trained feminist historian, in a way that women quite often are in history. So woke points to Peter Jackson. <laughs> oh, wow. I, I'm very excited for this uh, vector of analysis going forward because I hadn't even considered all that. But definitely rereading the books, um, I got that sense of, wow, Aragorn is wearing his, uh, you know, his history on his sleeve basically everywhere he goes. Um, I think it really stood out uh, when they arrive at Meduseld at Edoras, and, you know, they have to turn over their weapons before seeing <laughs> Theoden. And he's like, no, this, this is the fucking sword, man. This is yeah. the sword of the king. The one that's <laughs> going to cut, defeat, like, it's just like wild to me that like, that was the whole thing that I was kind of, ignorant of until I had just made my most recent pass through the book. So um, I do like that. Um, I had never really thought about that, but I think, I think that's great. Yeah, I am very pro making Aragorn shut up whenever, um, because I, I think he is like painfully annoying in the books. I'm, I'd quite like him as a character in the movies. So I'm like, he's best when he's quiet and good looking. And Galadriel understands that, which is why she cuts him out. Um, and this, this, this is how we know that Galadriel is kind of on our side. <laughs> that closes the book on this first episode of my brother my captain my podcast our email is at my brother my captain my podcast at gmail.com and my bro my cap my pod on twitter you can support this podcast by subscribing to my patreon Manuclear bomb which goes towards this and other podcasts i've been working on and I'm Manu, also known as That Manuclear Bomb. You can find me covering Metal Gear Solid over at Podcast Sans Frontieres. And I'll just say this this one time. You'll find a lot of similarity between this podcast and that. When Emily was talking about the end of history and Francis Fukuyama and making movies in that time, uh, we actually have 
you know, maybe 30 minutes of an entire episode talking about that as it related to making the Metal Gear game. So um, this is the last time I'll really pitch that podcast over here. But if you're interested, please check that out at Podcast Sans Frontieras. And I'm Emily at uh, Emily Robinson PT, where I very occasionally tweet about the horrible things going on in the UK. Um, and I'm generally a ray of sunshine um, and will hopefully be back on the net sometime soon when I get back into academia. But in the meantime, uh, definitely hit me up on that Twitter and let's chat Tolkien because I will make con- book converts of everyone. <laughs> And I did give you the email, which again is my brother, my captain, my podcast at gmail.com. But because of the whole Patreon thing, like if you ask me a Lord of the, or ask us a Lord of the question, Lord of the Rings question in that medium through Patreon, I'm basically forced to have to answer it on the podcast. So um, just keep that in mind. If you have any comments or feedback that you want to give me or Emily, Um, also please like and review our podcast wherever you may be listening. Since this is our first episode based on previous history, it'll take a little bit of time for us to get this up on every outlet that most people use, but you should expect to see it on the major ones, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google. Um, We'll be using Podbean for hosting, and I'll be sure to tweet out and let you guys know in upcoming episodes uh, where those, uh, what's it called, where else the podcast might be found. So until next time, please remember... I would have followed you, my brother, my captain, my king. So I put Harry Sinclair in here and I forgot who who the hell Harry Sinclair is. Do you know what that's about? I have no idea. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, don't worry. Uh, he Maybe he's the cinematographer. Maybe I'll look that up. Maybe I'll have that ready for the next episode. I'll probably just have our sound editor cut this stuff out. <laughs>